You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me again. Tonight's episode, I have a fellow podcaster. I have uh, Anthony Pirlioni of the podcast, and he's also involved in quite a few other uh, organizations and uh, whatnot, and we're going to get into that as much as we possibly can. And I want to thank him for coming on the show. I know he's it's kind of a little bit last minute for him, and I want to thank him for doing that. And before we get into it, I just want to thank everyone for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. Uh, big thanks to Audrey. I saw the nice five-star review. Appreciate that. And if you guys are looking to support the show, a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts is a great way to do it. And, of course, there's a Patreon page if that's something you'd be interested in doing. The $5 tier gets you a shout-out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. So if that's something you're interested in and you'd like to support the show that way, uh, definitely two great ways to do so. So uh, I'm going to just get right into it tonight because uh, Anthony has just gotten off a tw- uh, excuse me a 17-hour uh, work stint. So I know he's kind of running on fumes, and it's been a long day for me too. So, uh, Anthony, welcome. How you doing, my man? Oh, I'm doing so good. I'm doing so good. I love your process. This is great. Thank you. Thank you. Audrey gets the shout out. Audrey's feeling good right now. I'm feeling good. This is great. I like to make uh, people who are listeners and and I don't don't like to discriminate. I think that people who enjoy the show, whether the person is a guest, whether the person is is a fan of the show, whatnot, I I like to engage people as much as possible because I always tell people, look, this is your show. You know, people who come on the show, it's, it's your show. It's your time to talk. And hope, sure. hopefully I can maybe offer some uh, <laughs> some of my own insight <laughs> mixed yeah. peppered in there as uh, as occasionally as I can. But um, you're that's a, you're, the best part of the hobby, right? Like you know, you sh- you you show up for the reptiles, but then you stay for the people, right? So like you like being able to connect with with like minded people, to hear what they're saying, to to be moved and inspired by what they're working on or what they appreciate, like. You know, I, I've got a lot of complaints about, you know, <laughs> today's society and, and struggles and and all the technology and everything. It it's, makes everything so wonderful. But at the same time, it's like, oh, I, I miss the good old days, childhood. It was simpler, running around outside, flipping over logs and stuff like that. But really, like, it was tough to find like-minded, like-minded people years ago. You know, the, the, the ability now to just be able to connect with someone like yourself, like, it's it's a beautiful thing. Thank you. you know, pros and cons. It, yeah. it it is, and when when I get, I mean, I'm sure you get these um, uh, what not not diagnostics statistics. I'm sure you get statistics with your podcast as well. But I look at a lot of my the demographics, my audience, and whatnot, and I notice that consistently. I mean, I'm I'm 42, and my audience is generally younger than I am. The, the target, well, not the target audience, but the majority of my audience is about between the ages of 25 and 35. So these are these are younger people, and obviously. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm assuming you and I are kind of close in age, but I don't think people realize that years back, like you said, it was very, very difficult to get into contact with people who had the same interests. And even if you were two reptile people, two bird people, whatever, that didn't necessarily mean that you saw eye to eye on a lot of things. And I think that nowadays we have this media that is allows us to connect with people who have the same interests. And it's 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 nice. I mean, I, I started the show because at the time going back around um was it uh, the summer of 2020 things were uh things were interesting here in the US and I, I wanted a way to get people's minds away from the uh you know all, all the crazy things that were happening here and and it just it it was a, a nice way to uh 
meet people from all different disciplines and whatnot. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have the same. I'm, I've listened to quite a few of you, episodes of your show. I mean, just so everybody knows, um, Anthony actually hosts, he hosts two podcasts. So he's running double duty. And uh, the, the first the first one is the podcast. And I, I have to admit, when I was starting this podcast, <laughs> I was looking for a title. And I was like, oh, you know what? It's it's frogs. I'll do the podcast. And I looked and I saw that you had already had it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> sorry. Like you know, there's the a lot of board. podcasts. There's a lot out there, but but we were the we were the first. You can see, like our first episode is uh, February 2013. So we've been doing it almost nine years now. Yeah, um, and that's something but to there's, be. There's even like hockey podcasts that are called the Pondcasts, and a whole bunch of different stuff. There's a lot of frog casts out there too. Most of them are, are um, like like uh, I think like college sports or something like that. I just googled like mm-hmm. the frog cast. I'm like, I mean, I know nothing about professional sports, right? Unless it's like right. like fishing or something like that but <laughs> bass masters yeah i know i haven't watched that in a while but um <laughs> all right <laughs> why why don't we start off we, we i don't, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves so obviously just so everyone knows this is a show that's going to address some turtle uh some turtle content and i think that it is worthwhile i, I normally like to i call these the outside the glass box series when we address Species that are obviously not amphibians. I've done it before with tarantulas and chameleons and whatnot. And I've been looking to do a turtle show for some time. And I want to get into as much of the topic as we can, because I know there's obviously a a lot to it. And you're definitely the the man to see about it. But why don't we start with the beginning? Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience and tell us about some of your earliest experiences with, with animals or with turtles and what led you to where you are today? Sure, sure. So, so. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in a family, uh, family of divorce, two wonderful parents who loved me very, very much, but had their struggles. And, um, you know, we really struggled to kind of, you know, put food on the table and pay, you know, grew up on welfare, all this sort of thing. And had like a really interesting struggle when I was younger. And I had an aunt who actually passed away when I was nine, but from the time I was five, she was very young, died in a car crash. Um, but, but from the time I was five, I, she would take me to catch turtles. It was just our thing. And we would just do it whenever she'd watch me because it was free and there was a pond next to her house. And, um, I just thought that was something people did. Like, like to me, it was fishing, but more fun because I liked the turtles more. It was very, a very weird thing to grow up thinking that was normal. You know, like, like my daughters right now are four and seven and they're growing up thinking having 250 turtles in their house is normal. Um, but obviously we know that that's not the case. Um, so we would catch turtles. We would catch mostly Eastern painted turtles, snapping turtles. I had a box turtle when I was younger, these native turtles. And, you know, I probably tortured them a little bit and, and was, was quite ignorant and all of that, but it's something that like never went away. I always had, um, turtles all the way through school. I, you know, growing up, uh, relatively poor and in low, low income housing and that sort of thing and projects, I never expected to go to college. I really struggled with school um, through a lot of my adolescence. And then, you know, one day I looked up as like a freshman in high school and I was six foot eight with a size 18 shoe. And I was like, okay, I don't need to act out anymore. I just duck for the doorway walking in the homeroom. And that really saved me as a student and um, basketball got me recruited to go to college and that sort of thing. And, you know, I always loved turtles. Even at that point, I had pet turtles and and that sort of thing, but not to, you know, a huge degree. 
um, but always loved them. And I ended up going to school for art because that was something I was interested in. And then a lot of, you know, where I went after college, um, after playing college basketball and I played basketball in Italy for a little bit. Um, and, uh, then, you know, found myself as the internet in college, um, as the internet was really like exploding and there was so much opportunity to kind of network and, and research and that sort of thing. Um, found myself into the turtles more than ever and really regretting the fact that I had wasted a bachelor's degree on something other than zoology, biology, that sort of thing. Um, but you know, that's kind of where the turtle room was born is like a collection of people who are, you know, interested in doing more for, you know, this group of animals that's so imperiled and, and, you know, much, much like amphibians and frogs in particular, um, that needs help and let's band together. You know, we're college educated, we're smart. We, we have, you know, a good head on our shoulders, uh, resources, like, we know how to write, we know how to research, you know, we, we can read a, a scholarly journal without cringing too much. Like how can we use this and, and kind of band together to build something, you know, outside of institutional, you know, AZA and, and uh, that sort of thing. So that that's kind of how that kind of grew. That's like my entire life in, in a nutshell. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's definitely a, quite a story i uh i mean you for all intents and purposes you've basically made an entire life for yourself around turtles correct yeah so so i was a social worker for about 10 years after i got out of college i really had a hard time finding a job it was right when the recession was um right in the middle of you know rearing its ugly head and affecting a lot of industry and, and stuff like that especially um, you know, I'm here in the Northeast, like you are, and, uh, I was living in Rhode Island at the time and then Connecticut, both of those were, were hit really hard by the recession. And I'm like, I'm college educated, I'm charismatic, like not to toot my own horn, but I, you know, I, I do have like some people skills and I've got a college degree and like somebody please hire me to do anything. Um, and I worked like a billion different jobs. And then finally I, I started working in social work and, and that kind of gift of gab and people skills started to um, pay off and people were noticing me and all I needed was just a little bit of a pat on the back. So next thing I know, I've been in that field for 10 years. Um, and, uh, you know, 10 years in social work will, will do something to you. It, it'll start to burn you out a little bit. And then also it was like, there was this pressure for me to go back and get my master's and I really didn't want to do that. So I said, you know, maybe I could move over to animal related, uh, the, an animal related field. And I, I found a lot of cool roles and one of them actually really liked me. And that was to be like the marketing person for a really large 24 hour veterinary hospital because of my people skills. And they asked me in the interview, like, how do you do with people, uh, you know, with, with challenging, uh, people, you know, ch challenging customers or whatever i'm like listen i specialize in dealing with the, the most difficult uh you know interpersonal interactions that society has to offer like i'm talking to the you know the people who suffer from schizophrenia and you know their medications aren't working right now or whatever like the, like if i can handle that i could handle anything and, and they you know gave me a shot and then i've never looked back and i've I've been with VCA now for almost four years working in the veterinary field and it is just an amazing company and an amazing field to be in. And, and now I'm the hospital manager of a large hospital, like a, a hundred people, the type of hospital that you take your dog to get brain surgery. 
Um, so it's just, it's been an amazing wild ride. And now, you know, that happened because of the people skills and the social work experience and the management experience in that world. But then also the fact that like, I was no stranger to talking to veterinarians and, and talking about, you know, very in-depth scientific animal related discussions, uh, with veterinary professionals and and zoological professionals and, and all that sort of thing. It's I mean, again, that's that's another it's a you've got a very interesting life story. I will definitely say that it's interesting what you say, though, about people skills in the veterinary field is really in general for any medical field, because when you think about it, you're no one really wants to go see a doctor or a vet. You go because you have to. And I feel like at least my experiences have been that there are a very large number of people out there who don't possess the, the the tact and the way of speaking with people that confers the appropriate amount of compassion. Mm-hmm. And I mean, mm-hmm. my, my own personal career doing service work for as, as long as I did, you know, just after dealing with thousands and thousands of people, I mean, this, so everybody knows my, my old job, I cleaned sewers for 16 years and no one wanted you there. <laughs> that was the last thing people wanted. <laughs> and the same thing, you, you had to deal with people in a way that was at the same time compassionate, mm-hmm. but you had to understand that a lot of people were in these situations where they were extremely like hyped up and, and angry and, and frustrated. And it was, you really had to diffuse a lot of situations that had the potential mm-hmm. to just become, look, they could become ugly situations. And, um, yeah. you know, the people skills aspect of it is definitely an important thing that I think a lot of people don't give enough enough credence to right yeah and i think like that you know using that as an example like that's not a field you get into because you want to deal with people right like it's it's not a thought at that point like you're looking for a good steady job like you know all that sort of thing when when i when i do my trainings i do a lot of training around around communication and i I train veterinarians and i i train everyone from like kennel assistant who's been with the company for a day to you know, neurosurgeon who's been in the field for 25 years and everyone in between and has to work for all of them. And they are 17 hour trainings. It take over two days. It's a lot. And, um, you know, I'll ask people, you know, why did you get into this field? And vast majority of the time, the answer is because I love animals more than people. And I know you and I would both sign up for that and say, we love animals more than people, but you're in for a rude awakening in the real world that like, if you don't, if you don't sell the client, the person involved on the fact that you care, even if the care is perfect, if if you're not giving them the vibe and gaining trust and communicating value and making a, 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 a connection with them, an emotional connection, then you're not going to be successful. And I think the same thing happens. I see um, some real parallels to like the conservation side of things, which is my passion and, and, you know, the nonprofit that I've, I've helped to build over the years. The turtle room is animal people pun intended are extremely rabid about what they believe in. And you get people on opposite sides of the aisle that are, we're fighting for the same thing from like an outsider's perspective where we're passionate about the animals and protecting them, but maybe we have different ideas on how to do that. And that can be really dangerous because now your biggest enemy is somebody who's fighting for the same thing. Um, and I think I think that's where it really plays in in the con- conservation side. So sorry to jump around a little bit. But. No, that's fine. We can we can jump around or we can we can hop around if that's a bad pun. 
I, <laughs> I can't believe I did that. I'm sorry. Everyone. I love it. No, I like it because, you know, I'm not a frog guy. It's not, it's not that I'm an anti-frog guy, but I'm not, you know, so I like that pun. Well, I think that there's a lot of the That's same okay. concerns. I mean, as, as you just said, there, the, you, I think that you and I appreciate our target group in the same way. I mean, and I think that you and you have a, you have an appreciation for turtles the same way I have an appreciation for, for frogs. And, um, it's, it's interesting what you said about, um, the types of people that get into veterinary medicine and the two different approaches, as, as you just said, are, are really pretty polarizing. And I remember reading in, uh, Mater's reptile and amphibian medicine and surgery, there's actually a chapter in there essentially giving advice on how to staff your practice for, for your exotic practice. And it essentially says, and I'm not, I can't quote it because I don't have it in front of me, but just to paraphrase, uh, you know, people who are in it for, how do I put this? People who are in it because they love animals might not necessarily be the, the right people for certain situations in veterinary medicine. And, and by that, I think what they mean is you have to understand that there's going to be certain dynamics. There's, there's, you know, it's a business money has to be collected. Obviously services can't be rendered for, for free, but, at, but at the same time, there's also a human element, meaning if someone comes in and cannot afford the amount that is requested, you have to consider that in your treatment plan and whatnot. So you're right. It, it is, I find it just to be kind of a, a polarizing thing throughout the animal community especially when you look at people's approaches to husbandry and things like that matter I, I don't know what your preferred husbandry methods are for for turtles and i'm sure i mean obviously i hate to put turtles together since there's there's so many different species i don't want to compare apples and oranges but you know why don't we there's a there's a lot i want to get into but while we're on that subject what what are your because you work with turtles professionally scientifically conservation and you also keep turtles yourself do you have any preferred methods for husbandry kind of across the board that, um, that you swear yeah. by? So, um, yeah, you know, I push the envelope in certain areas and then I think there's other areas you can't push the envelope. And by push the envelope, I mean, kind of find like creative ways that maybe go against like traditional norms. For instance, like research shows that young terrestrial turtles like box turtles, for instance, like from the genus Cora, which is Asian box turtles. And then there's also like box turtles like here in the US, like three-toed box turtles, Eastern box turtles, that sort of thing in that whole genus. Young box turtles, but also some other, you know, pond turtle species like Blanding's turtles and stuff. These are relatively common uh, US species. I, I keep them in snake racks and that totally goes against the grain um, but only for that one life stage, like first year of life, because those animals, like, like the research is completely devoid of, of neonate hatchling and juvenile data because no one finds them because they literally just spend the first several years of their life hiding. That's all they ever do. And turtles are very long lived. Like you're talking about a blanding turtle in the wild. That's 20 years, you know, to to maturity you know these are very uh slow growing uh slow maturing animals i mean you can you can breed humans faster than you could breed turtles uh much different than you know the popular snake rearing and stuff like that but basically what's most important is for those turtles for instance is security humidity temperature and diet 
you know, everyone, but if you, if you look like on Facebook with people who are trying to help and they're coming at it from the right point of view, they're going to say UVB, it needs UVB right away. Like that's not the case. You know, UVB is enough to stress and, and probably stress is the top of the list of things that you have to worry about too. You know, the cortisol levels and, and what stress is doing bright light is going to, for a lot of these species and when they're younger, you know, simulate you know, open spaces under bright sunlight where predators are going to see them much, much more easily. They don't, you know, it's not a painted turtle or a slider that's going to come out and bask on a log to warm up. They're going to spend years of their lives hiding the entire time in the muck under the leaves. And then they find a worm and that's their life, you know? So I think, you know, using the literature and the research to kind of figure out what what the best means is and and like i'm not scared professionally or uh, whether it's you know the veterinary world or when it was social work or or with you know the conservation work that i do with the turtle room i'm not scared to kind of question and kind of challenge norms um especially if if it's you know just doing something because that's the way we we've always done it i might start with that but then kind of question it and maybe tweak things you well, know. it's an evolving process. I, I reevaluate sure. my care methods. I think that it, I, I never would have even thought. I mean, again, I, I know I have a red ear slider. That's the extent of my that, and I pick turtles up when I find them in the road. So I'm not really familiar with the with the nuances of different species and whatnot. But I've I found that before when you mentioned a, a certain social media platform, which I am conspicuously absent from, I <laughs> I, I happened across some content uh, a while back. And uh, I don't really, I don't really want to get into the specifics of the who, the where, and you know whatnot. But essentially, this this person had a tremendous amount of experience with a particular species, and the way that he kept the species for breeding purposes and whatnot was on the Spartan side, and with just cause, for 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 a number of reasons. And I found that he faced criticism from people for not keeping the animals in a different way. And I started thinking to myself, well, if you're only in the hobby a few months or a few years and you're, you're going off of information that might not necessarily be universal around the board. So you have to consider that just because your idea of what constitutes care at a particular life cycle or life, excuse me, life stage for a certain species is not the same as it would be for another at a different stage. And that's, that's, that's intriguing what you said about UV light and whatnot, because it seems like with with the frog hobby, it's it's a little bit different. It depends on which which camp you go to, but it, it seems like if you don't provide UVB, 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 you're by default a horrible keeper. But like you said, with 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 box turtles, they have a very very strong seasonal patterns here in the in the Northeast. So could excessive UV exposure upset their circadian rhythm? Could it affect growth rate? Could it affect any of these things? I think that these are a lot of things that people who make these comments in passing aren't necessarily aware of. I mean, how, right? They're they're trying their best, and but you know, I don't I don't know that they're that they're reading the the literature or that they're actually spending the time, you know, working with the animals or tracking the animals in the wild. Like if if you want to, you know, if you want to keep something like, and you're able to actually see those animals in the wild or or animals like them in the wild then it totally changes everything i remember the first time that i went out and tracked wood turtles 
um, in the wild uh, in New York, um, it was it was a game changer for me. Like, you know, we're, we were using uh, radio um, transmitters to to track their movements. And you're looking over the course of a season. I mean, these turtles are moving more than some people move in their in their like my wife works from home. I think this turtles moved around more than my wife does. And like <laughs> they're all over the place. They're climbing mountain, you know, ridges and, and they're going down in the water. And then they're spending this month every year, like or these couple months every year, you know, dry when it's the hottest in the spring, they're mating down in the river, like and they're moving all over the place. And then, you know, it was, it was funny after, um, after that experience, a friend of mine reached out to me and he's like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm keeping these wood turtles and they're just fighting and I just can't get them to stop fighting. And, and they're not breeding. I'm like, okay, well, how are you keeping them? And he's got a pair of wood turtles, which are big turtles in an aquarium together. I'm like, these things literally travel around everywhere. Like if they lived in my neighborhood, like they would use, you know, the, the eight, neighboring neighborhoods in the area they would use them all so they're all over the place so i think i think there's a little bit of a disconnect and and people um forget kind of you know what goes into you know what 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 their actual life uh looks like and and are just thinking of like traditional norms for like how we keep things and what we keep and and what we should keep i think i think a lot of times people are they see something rare and they think oh i want to be the one who keeps that and it's like well maybe it's not being kept or not being bred for a reason and you're just going to be the next person who tries it and is unsuccessful so and that's not fair to the animals right no that's very true i i agree with that i'm always reluctant to people have different attitudes obviously and it's it's completely there's no right or wrong answer per se but I'm always reluctant to have new animals come in because, well, what's, what are we going to, you know, what are we going to gain from this? Is this going to put added pressure on wild populations? Are we going to stumble along the way with improper care? Are we going to have a poor understanding? But I mean, obviously we have to begin somewhere. So my, my, look, my opinion really doesn't matter for the purposes of the show, but I mean, I know with with turtles, especially here in the, in the East Coast of the United States, I don't think a lot of people realize that we have one of the highest uh, hotspots of biodiversity for turtle species in the world. And I know a lot of these species also face issues from overcollection and whatnot. I mean, uh, quite a few states here on the East Coast have passed laws that are very, very strict about what you can and can't do with turtles. But do you want to tell us about some of the threats that might face some of these species? Like, I mean, we've got like the bog turtle, we've got the wood turtle. You want yeah. to maybe outline a few concerns for, for a, a few different species here? Yeah. So, I mean, the biggest concern is, is the fact that uh, they're so long lived as I touched on earlier. So, you know, you lose an adult female from the population. I mean, that is absolutely catastrophic. Like we don't even know how long they live. Like people say, Oh, turtles can live. 100 years they can live 200 years different tortoises or whatever like i question that a little bit i've seen enough episodes of shows like perfect strangers to know that when cousin larry's bird dies that Belky can try to replace it like but you know and over if it's a 200 year old tortoise like at some point like you're trusting generations of people to take good note taking i don't trust one generation of people to take good notes but uh i guess i've worked in the human and animal medical field long enough to know that i don't trust that but you know i think when 
you have an animal that who knows how long it could live 60 years, 80 years as an adult producing young, you take that animal out. It's absolutely catastrophic. And I mean, these animals are still being um, imported from overseas because of the four inch law, which was made to protect the public from disease from turtles. You can get disease from anything. You can get E. coli from dog poop. You can get E. coli and salmonella from Chipotle. Like it's, you know, yeah, you want to protect people. So the answer now is to import Russian tortoises from overseas. Um, so those are being snatched out of the wild. Other animals are being imported. Then they're being released into the wild. Um, they're being kept with natives that people catch. And then those are being released. Animals, animals are being taken from the wild. So there's this global turtle crisis that's been going on. Um, Bill McCord, who's a personal friend and an absolute legend in the turtle world. He has, he's described 12 species that are still considered uh, legitimate species. And he has two species that are named after him. McCord's box turtle is one of them, a very um, sought after uh, species that's extinct in the wild now. And he was the first one to really sound the alarm on the global turtle crisis, which started in Asia. And China basically acted as a vacuum that was sucking in any turtles in China. And as those became endangered and close to extinction, many of those species, then they started to suck in the species from surrounding countries, Vietnam, Laos, uh, Cambodia, and um, those turtles all became uh, rare as well, very rare, endangered, and on the door sometimes of extinction as well. Then, you know, something needed to keep feeding that machine. And make no mistake, like, you know, I don't want to get into politics, but if recent elections have shown us anything, it's that people can be on different ends of the um, of things in our country. And, and that's totally fine. I think, um, historically that's what made us, has made us really strong. And, um, it's the same thing in China. There's newer folks who kind of think differently about how they use animals and traditional medicine and things like that. But it really has taken its toll now on the global, um, on global populations of turtles, because, you know, the amount of confiscations at like LAX of turtles from New York, Connecticut, you know, Northeast states that are being intercepted um, on their way to China. You have to assume that it's just the tip of the iceberg, that they're only catching so many, but it's it's gone up exponentially um, in recent years. And it's it's all to just fill that that niche market um, around the globe. And we still have turtles, luckily, but not for long. It's a shame how things have, I mean, things have changed, I should say, in the hobby. Let's, let's just take out, for, let's just, for example, take out introducing species for things like agricultural, agricultural control, like, all right, like, for example, cane toads. Cane toads were introduced to Australia to control, uh, I think it was like some sort of cane beetle or something like that, but it, it failed because the beetles lived too high up in the cane fields for the toads to get them. And then like bullfrog ranching outside of outside of the U.S. is called problems. But the the hobby, I feel like, has become such a such a substantial part of what constitutes trade. Whereas, I mean, years ago, it really it was just kind of like an like an afterthought, like a lot of snakes we got here in the U.S. were a, a byproduct of the skin trade in, in, in places like Asia. As far as the 
trade in species goes, has this turtle crisis, has this affected public perception of, of the hobby, at least when it comes to turtles? Because here in the frog hobby, we have our, our fair share of, of drama and, and also in this, the, more so in the salamander hobby. But have issues like these, how does this impact the average hobbyist who, who keeps turtles? You know, it, it's changed in that people are reporting it. So like just, just last week, I was sitting in this exact same spot on the phone with somebody from a newspaper who was who was writing up a big story, like a research story, interviewing a bunch of, of uh, turtle people about, you know, the turtle crisis and how turtles from the Northeast are being sucked out, specifically from my home state of Connecticut, um, you know, this very topic. And, you know, that does affect perception. I don't think people realize, you know, like, like I get really sensitive to people online you know, who are, who've seemed very animal hungry, you know, like I need that. I need that. I need that. Oh, just got these today. Oh, I need that. Every time someone posts something cool, I need that. Oh, sell it to me. Oh, send it to me. And I don't know. I think, I think if, you know, like, um, if, if aliens or, or some, or really just somebody who has no idea what, what us animal people do were to see like the most public account of who we are, which I think is like classified ads. If I write an article or, or make a podcast or write an article in a magazine or, or even the book that I published, like it hits such a small, um, such a small amount of people, but the classified ads are seen by a lot of people. And if that's the most public account of who we are, I think what a sad realization for us to make and sad situation for us to be in. But I think when we look back years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, and we say, wow, remember when we could X, Y, Z, and we can't do that anymore. I, I hope, I hope that's not the case. I hope it's not as bad as, as I fear it might be. But I, I think that the classified ads and, and this kind of money hungry, got to catch them all Pokemon situation is is where is what's really going to do that for us and i mean i've been there i'm I, like and i'm sure you have too like i want animals too but i think i and and less now maybe than before because i i have more animals so it's easy for me to say now like hey guys pump the brakes i have all the animals i want so you guys shouldn't want anything else um i i just think you know the the I think the social media age is very much like right out there. Like you don't care if it makes you look dumb. If you ask a question, you just go to social media and you're like, Hey guys, here's my animal that, you know, isn't doing really well. What do you think? Even though you know, you're going to get berated. No hate on this post. Um, I, I think that people are less aware of kind of what image that they put out there. And I think that those images actually do have an effect. People are watching, you know, when you see people, getting arrested or you read some of the like official reports reports that are published on, you know, the trade in certain legal species, they're, they're citing things like fauna classifieds. They're, they're using things like Facebook and Facebook messenger to, to compile their information. So you think it doesn't matter and nobody's watching like they're watching and I think it matters. Yeah. In this day and age, every someone's always watching. And then obviously sure. having a public presence is the easiest way to get noticed. Yeah, I, uh, Absolutely. I, I'm, I want to just back up a little bit to the, the four inch law and just, so can you just explain it to the audience? And, um, I want to really touch on what the alternatives would be if people could get, well, like 
I mean, just I just so everyone knows the four inch law was when was it passed? It was like in the mid seventies, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, mid seventies. Yep. And it outlawed turtles with a carapace of four inches or less, right? Diameter. Yep. Okay. Can't sell them. Yeah. So pet stores mostly. That's where they mostly, uh, you know, enforce that. But you know, if you go to White Plains or Tinley, they you know they'll they'll walk you out if if you have any turtles under four inches. Whereas Hamburg, Pennsylvania, um, Florida, some of these other shows, they actually allow for turtles under four inches because, you know, their take on it is that these, this is not pet stores that, you know, as long as they post that they're for bona fide scientific reasons or education or whatever that you can sell them. But I mean, the, the, the reason was because kids were putting small turtles in their mouths. Um, the problem is, and I'm sure you love your slider, but sliders suck to keep. They just do. It'd be like saying, hey, guys, it's a health risk. You can't have ball pythons anymore. Everyone needs to have retics. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. So from that, like from a health perspective, because now you've got these huge turtles and the water's green because you're not willing to spend the money on the filtration and everything else. Like 95% of keepers who keep sliders aren't willing to do all of that. So now you've got the smelly green water and now you've got turtles that don't have a place to live. And now they're being dumped in local waterways to share their potential diseases and things that they've been exposed to with, you know, native fauna. Um, so that's basically the situation there. Certain states have smartened up and said, wow, red ear sliders are really adaptable and they live here now. They're basically like the Super Bowl. Anywhere anywhere people watch the Super Bowl, there's red ear sliders, right? Like 180 countries and every state in America. So um, they've smartened up, but then what do they bring in? They have to bring in something that the turtle farms in Louisiana, where about 90% of American turtles are farmed, can be produced in large enough numbers and grown to four inches fast enough for it to make sense fiscally so now they're selling like female map turtle hybrids which are also big turtles and also can probably survive in a lot of the places are being sold so it's not a good situation if you know if it were legal to sell like a red cheek mud turtle which is small and would be a great pet turtle for a family but wouldn't survive here if released that would be perfect but um, they don't even know that it exists, so they're not smart enough to, to figure that one out. Well, here, here's my question. Mm -hmm. If the four-inch law was rescinded and people were allowed to buy turtles that were like, I mean, j just so everybody knows, going back a ways, like if you ever see the movie Rocky, Rocky had a, uh, he had a, a, a pair of turtles. Used to, there was a place called Woolworths here in New York. And you go into Woolworths, you'd buy like a little lousy looking like this like horrible half of a glass fishbowl and like this little palm tree well if the four inch law was rescinded and smaller turtles with like a one inch to two inch whatever uh carapace uh carapace diameter were were available again would that be a good thing or a bad thing and by that i mean would turtles become more of an impulse throwaway purchase more so than they already are or would that be a better way to prevent things like, um, uh, I don't know, like, like smuggling or unnecessary pressure on other populations or other species? I think it's a human thing, honestly. And I think that no matter what, there'd be an ugly side. And that's a really good question for that reason. I think it'd be great in the sense that we wouldn't have to import wild-caught animals from across the ocean 
to walk around on people's apartment floor and and crap on their kitchen floor with you know wriggling roundworm species that aren't native to america or something like it's 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 gross what what we do because of that law so that's your family pet and people are buying these animals at PetSmart and petco not knowing that they literally just got snatched out of the wild overseas and shipped here to be sold so either way it's a negative i think the you know the positive i'd like to look on the bright side that if you could you know if all of a sudden that opened up tomorrow we can do a lot of education you know with you know through social media and otherwise to really educate people on which species they should be buying because now like there are species that would make great pets that don't even hit four inches so technically given that law even though they're much better um choice that could not you know take over here or even survive here and would be captive bred and you know would not be carrying salmonella unless unless they were kept really gross and fed like raw hamburger like people did in the 70s with their turtles and it would be a really wonderful thing now would people still try to sell the cooters and the sliders that are really uh poor pet species that grow to be 11 12 13 14 15 inches and you know for the for the larger cooters that are larger than sliders um for five dollars like sure but you know i'd like to think word would get around now like how many people do you think buy reticulated pythons not knowing that they get large there's not many like i think people who are conscious of that know all right i'm gonna get a ball python i'm gonna get a corn snake i'm not going to you know buy the retic even though it's small right now i know what it is um I mean, obviously there are people who do that, like, oh, well, I'll have a bigger place in five years. Okay, great. People do that with sulcata tortoises, the third largest uh, tortoise species on the planet, which is a very popular pet here in the US. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, would it be perfect? No, but it's not perfect now. And I think it would be better. I'm just afraid of anything that could potentially make the situation worse and the, my my opinion of the four inch law has always been it's, it's it's archaic. It's fifty years old, and it reflected a time when we really only had a few species of turtles in captivity at the time. Anyway, so you make a good point about certain other species being more adaptable or more appropriate to become captive bred uh, uh, to become captive captive kept species. Because I mean, my red slider is it's I I've had her for almost twenty years. And my wife and I actually bought her in a snowstorm. <laughs> so we, we've gotten attached to her. But in retrospect, would I should I have picked a different species? I, I definitely think so. But I'd be afraid that if smaller species, excuse me, if smaller specimens became available, they'd become more of an impulse purchase. There'd be more of them getting dropped off because people seem to have this weird arbitrary determination in terms of what's appropriate size for a captive animal and it seems to start like small something you can hold in your hand and then once it gets bigger than like something you can hold in both hands people just can't seem to handle it anymore yeah. uh, can you but i mean i've got i've got an outdoor pond <clears throat> and there's a limit to if i wanted to take in sliders i'd be full in a week you know, that's the issue because these sliders are big and they're mean and they beat each other up. And, you know, there are species that that cohabitate well and aren't going to take over the environment and they're captive bred and like everything is good about them, even if they were impulse purchased. So like I breed Reeves turtles and I literally give them away to people like 
if I work with someone, they're like, I think I want a turtle. Like you talk about turtles and they're so cute. And you show me pictures of them hatching out of the egg. And I think they're really cool. I think I want a turtle. Like, perfect. I got a bunch of Reeves turtles that I hatch and the males top out at four or five inches. And they're great pets. When you have a single one, they're just awesome. And if you don't want it, give it back and I'll put it back into my breeding colony. It's perfect. You know, or, or I'm hatching these mud turtles and they're terrific. And they're part of my my breeding group but if you want to do something with your kids like take these turtles take care of them for a little bit and when you're done with them i'll give you another hatchling and you never have to keep adults you know like i think there are ways to work with people um and and find a solution you know but it, it's it straps us a little bit we could do a lot more of that if there was no four inch law we could replace all of these species that are really just poor candidates, but the law, like these guys are working the law to make a profit. If, you know, if Russian tortoises are the best pet to give people awesome, but you know, to turn a profit, you have to import them and, and snatch them out of the wild to still be able to turn a profit. Um, that, that doesn't sit well with me. They are captive bred, but not enough to meet the demand. And it's not cost effective because it costs a lot to raise them to four inches. So like, I'm not interested in taking what's best for the person in Louisiana who's trying to shove their agenda on me. I'm interested in taking what's best for me. And, and, you know, that particular law being lifted would make it possible for, for us to get people, you know, what's best for them and have a conversation with them about their options. At this point, there really aren't options for people who are going to a pet store. It's whatever they have available based on however they want to make a buck off of you. What are some common mistakes that people make when it comes to turtle husbandry? And I know that's kind of a broad topic. And um, let's let's why don't we pick why don't we pick a more commonly available aquatic turtle? And we'll start with that. I mean, it's 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 dealer's choice, whatever you'd like to start with. Uh, maybe pick a species and discuss the the way people are keeping them the, versus the way they actually should be kept. The problem is with aquatic turtles is that they have complicated needs, you know, and it's tough to understand. It's like me trying to figure out my my wife, who's such a saint for putting up with me. But there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of nuance there, and there's a lot of things that need to be working in concert. Like they need to be able to bask and dry off completely. They also need, you know like we're just scratching the surface in terms of knowledge of what they need in terms of light, you know, UVB versus infrared versus, you know, basking heat versus, you know, all, all sorts of different wavelengths and stuff like that. And there are many other podcast guests out there that you'll get a lot more on lighting from than me, but the cleanliness of the water, um, you know, aquatic plants and things to hide. I think, I think a really big misconception is, is security. You put them in a glass case of emotion and expect them to just be cool. <laughs> or you put them like in a tank with other animals and expect them to be like, like being in a jail cell is one thing being in a jail cell with like four roommates, man, that's, that's gotta be pretty rough when you're like on top of each other. And, and they're not like the animals come together for one thing. And that's breeding. Other than that, if you see them basking on a log together, that's not because they like each other. It's that's seeing strangers at a bus stop together. They're there for the resource. They don't actually like each other. They're there for the resource. So I think, you know, over time, you kind of get a, a better understanding of, of kind of what goes into it. But and I don't mean to say, you know, the animals are in jail cells, but like, you know, a lot of times, given the species that are common, sliders, cooters are the most commonly kept aquatics. 
those turtles get to, you know, sliders get to be 11 inches. Cooters get to be 15 inches, 16 inches. Like, how is that the most commonly sold aquatic turtle? That's insanity. It's cra- I mean, I, I have, I have adult turtles that are like, I think the smallest turtle that ever laid an egg lives in my turtle room and it's, it's 32 grams. It's, I mean, the turtle is so small. I, I have I have turtle eggs from other small turtles that are larger than this adult turtle that laid an egg. Like you know, we 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 can do better. <laughs> there's there's better options. Unfortunately, they're not technically legal to be. They're not legal to be sold. You know, as pets. What about things like estivation and cycling? Because my my goal was to ultimately be able to work my turtle to be to get her outside at least during the summer months because i'm space is at a premium and i i've i've built an outdoor enclosure for my bearded dragon to get some outside time during the summer and i'm looking to build her a pond i mean have you noticed any differences in terms of just health or quality of life as opposed to keeping a turtle outside in more um you know obviously less man-made conditions as opposed to keeping a turtle inside there's, there's nothing better than observing a turtle outside. And I tell you what, that, that, that red ear that swims to the side of the tank and frantically splashes when you walk in the room because it thinks you're going to throw some pellets its way, you put that thing outside and it's going to behave differently. It's going to bask differently. It's going to dive in the water at times. And, you know, they may still swim over, but it's different. You know, some of the times the turtles actually do hide when they're outside and they kind of revert to this wild state, which is really cool to see instinct kicks in. Um, so yes, you definitely see it. Um, a lot of times the color of their shell and and skin will change. It'll darken up in the, in the natural sun and you can see them really start to flourish when they're outside. So outside is always best. It's tough to do up here. So I have some turtles up here in Connecticut that are not native because I don't keep any, I don't keep any native turtles because I'm in Connecticut and they really have kind of a hands-off like outlaw just about everything. And if you have anything native, where'd you get it? And, and, and the DEP kind of has a hands-off policy and doesn't really enforce a lot of things, but really like outlaws a lot of things. It's like, fine, that's what the state does. So I'm cool with that. And I don't keep any natives for that reason, but I keep, I have some turtles that live outside year round. I have some that live outside half the year. And then, you know, they, they spend the winter on the garage floor um, sleeping. And then I have some that are awake all year and they, and they live in my turtle room year round, which does, the temperature does drop, um, which is great for my leaf turtles. So I, I have to tell you about my leaf turtles. This is, this is the species that I wrote my book about and, and it's, it's a gateway turtle for the dart frog community. So I have to tell you about this. So that's my specialty in the species that I'm most known for. There are a lot of like reptile YouTubers and stuff who are not turtle people, but they keep this species. So if you guys are, if you like the idea of like bioactive terraria, that sort of thing, pothos, bromeliads, cork bark, isopods, you know, all of that sort of stuff. This is the turtle species for you because they top out around four inches and they look like a leaf and they are the most comical, intriguing turtles in the world. Um, they need a cool down. So, you know, they're in my, in, my, in my turtle room year round, but my turtle room cools down for them and other species that need the cool down. And then I use like enclosed, um, closed chamber uh, enclosures for things like Indian star tortoises and things like that that need, need it pretty warm year round. So it's quite a, it's quite an operation. I'll tell you, 
we moved into my house, um, J- I'm sorry, July 2019. And I spent, you know, COVID obviously has been a horrible um, thing that's affected so many people uh, so negatively. And But for me, you know, silver lining, even though it was obviously very stressful and, and very sad and all of that, um, silver lining is that I got to, got to spend pretty much all my free time with the animals and setting things up the right way. So I'm feeling very accomplished and, and now starting to see a lot of a lot of reproduction and, and, and production of, of offspring that that really kind of makes me feel good about a lot of things, because I think as a, as a turtle breeder, I, I feel a lot of pressure. You know, if I get some eggs from a turtle that's that's not really bred in captivity or it's extinct in the wild um, or it's an animal that's like not even kept by, you know, zoos and aquaria, then I I feel really um really good about you know the opportunity to produce them and it it puts a lot of pressure on me so right now i'm happy because i'm finishing up egg laying season and i actually produce some stuff but uh you can ask my wife i'm i am a mess leading up to it and and through the whole thing because there's just so much pressure on me or at least i guess i put the pressure on myself because i care it is rewarding to see your efforts come to bear fruit and i mean someone had asked me about what I do, and my my answer was like it's kind of it's like being a gardener. You 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 tend to this thing or whatever it is. You you, you nurture it, you foster it, and you you make it grow, and that's what is really really satisfying. I mean, at least at least for me, I mean, it must be really incredible to have because frogs, for all intents and purposes, reproduce relatively easy. So I can only imagine it must be a real good feeling to have a, a, a turtle species reproduce right in front of you considering how long it could take to get them oh. to reach sexual maturity i've got some spider tortoises that came from the knoxville zoo and i've been raising them for 10 full years and now they just started producing and i got a fertile egg this year and it didn't hatch it died and the eggs take a year to hatch them so you could imagine so like think about like like first of all i i've been pumping these things up like 10 years like feeding them anything they'll eat for 10 years they finally drop an egg and it's good and I couldn't believe it. And then it dies and it's like, okay, better, better luck next year. And then the eggs that come next year, I'm going to have to wait a year for them to incubate. So it's like just the timeline, I think for other animal people is just something, whether it's like mammals, snakes, frogs, whatever it is, the timeline is just insane. How much of a, of a commitment it is to, to be able to get things, especially if you're starting with hatchlings to get things to a point where they can start to produce. So, you know, I get that egg and, you know, like I might have a really rare species that like I've got one reproductive female and she's going to drop two eggs and I'm going to like lose sleep to two nights after they're laid, hoping that they band up and chalk up and show me that they're fertile. And then I'm going to like be pulling what little hair I have out, hoping that those things hatch over the entire incubation period waiting for it. So it's, it's stressful. Isn't that a great feeling when you're, you're laying in bed at night and you can't sleep and your house could be on fire and yeah. you're more <laughs> worried about yeah. something totally. laying eggs or not eating properly. Totally. <laughs> it's like, and you know, it's, it's big. There's this idea of emotional contagion specifically with negative things. So like <clears throat> there's this idea of the tiger in the water hole. So over, you know, the course of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, as humans were evolving relatively quickly, might I add, um, the people who were able to focus on the tiger as opposed to the water hole 
were more likely to survive and pass on their genes, right? So, so we evolved focusing on the negative. That's why Real Housewives of wherever is going to be popular. It doesn't matter where they're from. If they're housewives, we're going to watch it on Bravo. It's because we live for that drama and and we we get sucked into that negative. And that's why there's so much negative talk, like in the reptile world and stuff like that. And 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 it's so important to rise above and to keep in mind like how lucky you are. If 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 I, you know, me 15 years ago, 12 years ago, could see me now, I would be so proud and excited and and elated to know like beautiful home, beautiful family, even like me as a kid, if I could see now who I am and what I'm doing and like, I'm concerned because a turtle egg didn't hatch, but I get a chance at it next year. Like, are you kidding me? Like, what the hell am I focusing? What am I giving myself such a hard time for? Like, this is beautiful. I'm playing the game that I always wanted to play and I'm, I'm making, you know, a change this past weekend. I hatched three endangered species. One of which is being bred by almost no one in the entire country. Another one is extinct in the wild. And the third one is being bred by almost no one in the country. Like they hatch for me the first time I've ever hatched them all three of them this weekend, they all popped out at the same time and I've never hatched any of them before. I am thrilled, but at the same time, like, I don't think it has as much of a profound effect as like those times when bad things are happening and the eggs aren't making it. I think I worry more about the negative and I need to like kind of slap myself in the face and be like, listen, man, like there are a lot of people who would love to be doing what you're doing. And, and, you know, it's good work. And, and there's a reason why you dedicated your life to it. You know, and I, I think I have to remind myself of that sometimes, you know? Yeah. There's a fine line between where a hobby becomes an obsession. And I, I feel like the word obsession kind of has a negative connotation, but I mean, I think about these things constantly, but I mean, as All you, day. as you, <laughs> you said, you, you had challenges growing up, you had circumstances that were not uh, that that could have resulted in a different life direction, and I myself had uh, made poor life choices at different points in my life. And now it's like if, if I'm worried about a frog kind of disappearing somewhere in the enclosure, and I'm not worried about other things, which I would prefer not to get into. But I think everyone kind of gets the idea: is if you're really that immersed in it, it the fact that it's in an obsession really isn't a bad thing. Of course, it's a great thing. And and for the wives, and and that's the big thing with our show, Turtly Devoted, that my wife and I, Shannon, do, is, you know, if 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 he's into frogs, he's into turtles, he's into conservation, he's into trying to make the world a better place for this little silly thing that for this grown man to care about. But if he's if that's what he cares about, then like it could be a lot worse. It could be a lot worse. Um, but at the same time, we're also insufferable to live with at times. So it's it's a balance. It's a give and take for sure. Yeah, definitely. So I know that it's a lot easier to, uh, I guess, you know, at, at the end of the day when you're, you know, going to bed with your, with your spouse, uh, talking about, Oh, you know, by the way, I, I got an infertile clutch of, uh, Tinctorious today. And, and, Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, honey, as opposed to uh, other conversations you could be having at the end of the day that aren't necessarily, uh, as uh, positive, but Right. You know, while we're on the subject of, of, of Turtly Devoted, I, I forgot to mention earlier on, that's the name of your, your second podcast that you, you host that with yeah. your wife, right? 
I do. I do. My wife who, who went to school for fashion merchandising and, and every single person who knows her thinks it's hilarious that she married this guy who's into this, you know, weird, uh, kind of gross hobby to by her standards because she's she's very bougie and very fancy and she's very you know she'll wear like the the fluffy uh fake fur you know and you know high heels and the whole thing and she's she's very fancy lady who's very prim and and relatively proper and all of that so um we're we support each other really well um and and have a wonderful very hilarious existence together so i think that the the pod the podcast really reflects that and it's been a lot of fun and it's also kind of you know the podcast because because it's guest centered um you know like we're doing right now it's it's tough to get the caliber of guests you know that that we want all the time and and we it's kind of a bigger show with a lot of people involved and it so it kind of t- it has its own kind of thing with this one it's just like hey you want to record let's let's just chat you know and it's very it's very low key and very much like if you're if you're driving to to hamburg or white plains with shannon and i this is the, what the conversation would be we'd be talking about turtles and parenting and uh and all of that sort of stuff and, and work and, and why I'm silly and why she's silly and all the rest of it. So it's, it's been really great. And we've been doing it for um, a little over a year now. And I, we've, we're on to like third, I think we've got 30 episodes and it's just been a lot of fun. How is it as a family? Because here in my house, we, my daughters know that, we live differently than, than most people. Most people don't have a collection of, of 30 frogs. It's just, and my collection is nothing compared to some of some other people that I know and speak to. But what's it like as, as a family when you go to family functions or the kids go to school or your wife has a conversation with coworkers? How front and center do, do you make this? Because in my house, we're, we, we're, we're, everyone knows, but it's not something that I really put out there first I kind of introduced myself and add that second as as a family dynamic how does the the whole turtle dynamic pan out if you don't I mean you don't have to answer that yeah. I'm just no just... of course of course I am an open book and it like with totally devoted we, like the like some of the if we've got any con- constructive criticism it's been like oh you guys are like really open but both of us have social work backgrounds like so we're we're okay with like owning our stuff our own personal stuff we're okay with airing out our laundry a little bit. Like it's not that embarrassing that like she thinks the turtle room shouldn't smell. And I think that the leaves don't need to be raked six times every fall. Like I think like once or twice is enough. Like the leaves only fall once, right? Every leaf only falls once. But like so we, we disagree about certain things. And sometimes we air out that laundry a little bit publicly. But I think like my kids, I wouldn't say my kids love it. Um, my seven-year-old is a little bit more prim and proper. She's much like my wife. And she loves like when a baby hatches, she knows who certain turtles are and she likes them. And when they have babies, she gets very excited. Um, I refer to them as neonates, but she likes to call them babies. So forgive me. Um, And my four-year-old is very much like me and she loves getting her hands dirty and she wants to be involved and follow me down there and stuff like that, which is really great. But if we're at like social functions and we're talking to people, like it's always at the forefront, it comes out, my kids are talking about it. They're just starting to realize that we're different, you know, with, with, and, and they're learning what numbers are and like what that actually really means. Like, 
you know what it means to have 230 turtles and and how many it is like wow daddy that's a lot of turtles i'm like oh yeah honey you sound like mommy now uh but you know the family supports it they love it and i think the point is that like because it's turtles and much like frogs it you can you can kind of have that conservation or at least preservation standpoint where you say like this is a really rare animal on earth and you know this this turtle that i'm holding right now makes tigers look like humans population wise like everyone's making such a big deal you know save the tiger save the this like this this is really rare and nobody even knows it exists and it was about to go extinct until people like me decided i'm gonna breed that i'm gonna not let that one get eaten and i'm gonna take it and i'm gonna breed it and now that saved several of these turtle species particularly the ones from southeast asia that i mentioned earlier and and you know we're really doing something and when you're doing something that important and you write about it or you make videos about it or you make podcasts about it or you go and do public speaking at like conferences and things like that like i've been able to do i've been fortunate enough to do then then it takes on a bigger you know a, a bigger meaning and i think for that reason i've been very confident and so has shannon and she's really come around to say you know what there are people out there that value my husband's opinion because of what he knows about turtles and and what he thinks about turtles and and that sort of thing and and i respect him for that and it's cool and like i'm okay with that and re recently my mother uh my birthday was in august and my mother bought me a vanity plate for my car which i don't think i ever would have done on my own and i was embarrassed at first and i'm like this is so cool because connecticut like went up to uh like you could use seven characters now and they just opened it up so like she got me my license plate is like a real license plate that says turtles and it's like my license plate in my car now and like i don't mind it's my life it's what i've dedicated my life to it's who i am it's it's what i do and i'm not upset and and she's not upset if we end up having that conversation she supports it and she helps me if i'm working and i'm really busy she'd be like hey can i feed the tortoises some greens today like which ones need to eat or or what greens do you want to feed them to get today or or whatever and if i'm going down to feed them my daughter wants to come to feed them so it's it's really it hasn't always been that way there was times where it was you know where it was first kind of really booming and growing for me and you know like sorry honey i have to talk to this guy from germany about turtles or i have to you know, I'm being asked to go and give a talk at this Herp Society in Florida, and I really want to go. And, you know, then she gets on me about my FOMO and the fact that everything is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But, uh, you know, I really care about it, and, and it's really grown to, to bring us together now at this point. But And it was when we were first dating, but there was a time in the middle there where it really pushed us apart, too. I can understand that. It's difficult when you have a hobby or an, an interest that's, I guess, a little unconventional, I guess mm -hmm. we, we, we could say. Yeah. I, Why I, is he worrying so much about something that's so trivial to 99.9% yeah, yeah. of society? Right. I, I feel like turtles and, and frogs as well have a little bit more of a better public image. I think that if you, yes. you, you could go into a wedding with a whole bunch of strangers and, oh yeah, I raise endangered turtles. And they're going to kind of look at you odd for a second and then, oh, well, that's interesting. I, I've seen turtles in my backyard. If you went yeah. in and you said, oh, by the way, I work with venomous snakes, mm -hmm. you're going to get that look like, Ooh, oh, yeah, what the hell is wrong with there. you? Yeah. And yeah. I, I, it's like I I always mention the frogs first. I don't mention, I don't have a huge snake collection anymore. I never really did, but 
I've only got the three now, but I don't, I'm like, don't ask, don't tell. I just don't bring that up because I find that it's outside of a lot of people's comfort zone and some of the, which it shouldn't be, but some of the message tends to get lost. But I'm always the one where someone, maybe one of my wife's colleagues or something, um, we don't really have much of a social life anyway, but it's always, oh, you know, Dan knows about animals. I'm like, I don't know about all animals. I know about a couple of species of frogs. Do you get that too? Like when when a you know a, a friend or a relation or a classmate of one of the kids has an issue, they come like straight to you for advice. Oh my gosh, of course. I mean, I welcome it though because I really do. Sometimes I'm too busy and I get a little flaky. I don't mean to be, but like, and now in my world, like the fact that so so because of the training that I do for VCA, we've got like 21 hospitals just in Connecticut, but I do trainings around the entire East Coast, so uh, around the entire Northeast. So like I've got people in Kalamazoo, Michigan, who know I'm the turtle guy, people all over the place. So so I get contacted constantly by people who who know that I'm the turtle guy in the veterinary field because somebody just cold called their hospital with turtle questions and like they send them to me. So it, it gets to be a lot, but like on one hand it sucks when I'm busy, but like that's all I ever wanted was to be known, you know, and, and to help out. That's all to be in the know and to be able to help out and be respected enough for people to respect and want my opinion. Like it's such a, an honor to, to be that person. So it's, uh, it's a lot and it happens quite a bit. And there are times where my DMS are full with, with people just out of the blue asking questions, but I try my best to, to help everyone that I can. Yeah. People, when they, when they reach out to me, I end up, I end up leaving them with more questions than they probably <laughs> started out it's with. Not, well, it's not black and white. They want a quick answer. Like, sorry, not always yeah. happening. And that's why sometimes I might get flaky. I might get flaky because they want a long answer or, or, or a specific answer. And I give, you know, I don't have enough time to give, write the book for them that they could, they're going to need. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. You, you turn into this pontificating crazy man mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> like oh geez okay sorry I asked. yeah it's like <laughs> hold on let me dust off my my pedestal here let me get up here okay right well to start <laughs> off <laughs> and then two hours later First of all two yeah, hours later the question still hasn't been answered i know as I as know. far as the the vca hospitals go i i had some i had some experience in veterinary medicine when i was younger uh, I, I actually, I, I worked a few different veterinary practices and I worked at an overnight in a local emergency hospital and the exotics aspect of it was really very, very limited. I mean, I remember once they had, they had brought in a turtle with a prolapse and they basically just put it down on wet paper towels and just, you know, irrigated the area with, um, with, with fluids. I don't even know what, I don't know if it was, uh, I don't, I don't, I think it might've been a cloacal prolapse. Cause I know that when they prolapse the male reproductive organs, I know that can be amputated, but there really wasn't much of a solution. They basically just said to the, 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 uh, the owner, you know, we're just kind of observe it overnight. Do you offer any kind of guidance to vets at the VCA in terms of how to manage turtle injuries and, and health yep. issues and whatnot? Because I do. Okay. Yeah. No, they have more, you know, they have more medical background. They're veterinarians for crying out loud and they see exotics, but, you know, but they know the importance of understanding particular species, which they don't, 
Um, which, which it's not the most important thing in the world. Like I've heard people hate on veterinarians, uh, exotics veterinarians to say like, well, they didn't even know they called my yellow belly slider, a red eared slider. Like, okay, that's the same species. They're different subspecies. It's the same damn thing, especially medically, like relax, get off your high horse. It's okay. Um, that means nothing. Like there are, you know, so many different herp species that that these doctors would have to know to know what we know when we're geeking out over different species and you know this frog is different than this frog because of this little coloration change or this turtle is different than this turtle because it reaches 12 inches and has this little marking and the other one only reaches 11 inches and has a different marking like who cares that doesn't matter from the medical perspective but but there are times like you know okay a tortoise came in they don't know if it's a young sulcata or a Russian tortoise. Like, that's fine. No big deal. You can ask me and I'm happy to be that person to help them with that. And I can tell them like, yeah, agronomies horse field eye. And this is normally what, you know, the issues are in captivity because I think the, like with, with reptiles, the, the issue a lot of times with, um, with veterinary stuff that comes up is husbandry related and, you know, being able to figure out how they're kept, and then, you know, helping them to say, okay, ask about this, whatever, and just giving them that sounding board to say, like, I have a little bit of, of a different uh, outlook and, and angle on this than you do um, is very helpful for them. Because basically, just so you and everyone knows, and I'm sure you do, but like an exotics veterinarian most of the time is somebody who has enough guts out of school to say, yes, I'll see that. That's it. I have enough of an interest to say, you know what? I'll see the snake. I'll see the duck. I'll see the chicken. I'll see the rabbit. I'll see the snake. And they don't know, especially when they're starting out a lot about those animals. And even if they are experienced exotics vets, they're not seeing them all the time. Dogs and cats pay the bills for any veterinarian, including exotics veterinarians, including a lot of board certified exotics veterinarians. There's one, there's a board certified exotics veterinarian that calls me with every turtle thing that comes in. And she's a wonderful a wonderful veterinarian, but she just doesn't see enough turtles. And when she sees one, she wants to ask me things because I happen to dedicate my life to turtles and that's fine. It doesn't make me more of a medical, you know, whiz than she is. That's for sure. She is brilliant. A doctor's doctor. She became a veterinarian and then did four more years of school. Like that's crazy. Um, and, and she's brilliant. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, people, should understand a little bit that you know anywhere you go they are kind of they're, they're looking at the book usually even if they're really experienced exotics veterinarians and they're doing the best they can but you're lucky that they're willing to do it because most veterinarians nope i talk to them all the time hey why don't you ever see turtles you don't want to take a look at my turtle nope no interest no interest not that they don't like turtles they they are scared they're scared that people are going to be unreasonable and mean and and forceful and and everything else because they care about their animals and and there's there's a level of um of of self-doubt that really is is strong within them they they're veterinarians are supposed to be the expert and if they get into a spot that they're they feel like their expertise isn't strong enough then they're very self-conscious I don't feel like there's any shame in referring to a book. I've I've had no. regular physicians. I mean, to me, to me, look, look, I don't quite know the answer to this situation. Let let me look and let me find out. And if I can't find mm -hmm. out, let me at least find someone else who does. I yeah. don't see any shame in that. 
it's i was helping a veterinarian the other day it's like 2 a.m i went in because we had an issue at the hospital i don't normally do this it was the first time actually since i've been at this new hospital that i've done it and she was doing surgery on a dog and it was just a weird it was a really weird like pocket that was caused from this like laceration she was doing the lack lack repair laceration repair on the overnight and she's got the animal under anesthesia and she's like can you find this book and i'm going through like trying to find the book and they said like, okay can you hold it open for me and she's sitting there doing surgery while i hold the book open and we're like she's like okay we're you know look in the glossary where does it say this and we're like finding it together and afterwards i just went up to her and i said you're such a rock star you know like if you weren't willing to do this and you just shied away from it and said no no I don't want to go out there and better myself and learn and, and experience things like you wouldn't be here working as an ER vet on the overnight, getting this awesome experience. You'd be just doing, you know, vaccines and limiting yourself because of fear of the unknown and fear of being out of your comfort zone. And like she's going to be such an amazing veterinarian because she's not scared to say, yeah, I'm going to try that. And from a leadership perspective, I need to do everything I can to support her and not let her burn out. Because I don't want her being, you know, doing the vaccines and being at some small GP hospital three years from now because she just couldn't do it anymore. So it's like that give and take of um, as as hospital leadership of, of being able to, you know, help these folks really have a good life balance and, and be with it for the long haul. Well, that's a good example of cultivating the human aspect of it, because I yeah. feel like a lot of people... <sighs> Talent and aspiration are generally only rewarded if they generate income for someone, which is which is a shame because I feel like it's it's very easy to discourage people who might be very passionate about a particular topic to go that extra mile only to have it not come come back as a reward. I think it's like what's that expression? The the best way to make money is to make money for other people. So I've I mean I've in my whole career, professional act whatever. I mean, I've met some pretty remarkable people in, in all different aspects of life. And I found that the, the smartest people were generally not the most wealthy either. <laughs> they, yeah, they, they put their principles. they're smart enough to know that that's not what's important. Yeah. Yeah. They, they put their principles first. And it's like, wait a minute, you, you went an hour out of your way to go find this really obscure piece of information because it bothered you in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. That's to me. That's great. That, to me, that yeah. that is that is something that I would place value on in in any field, regardless of whether Absolutely. it's veterinary yeah. medicine, human medicine, or even you know a trip to the shoe store to buy new shoes. That that to me is the consummate definition of a professional. Completely agree. Completely agree. Because nobody knows it all. You know, be willing to say, "I don't know the answer, but I'll find it for you." Or in this case, like, "Hey, we're on the overnight. It's just us. I'm the boss. I'm the doctor. Like, I'm going to make it happen." You know. So it's, it's a beautiful thing. I, I, I'm, I'm very lucky in that I love my work and I love my family and my home and I love my, my turtles. It's just, it's a beautiful thing. It, it definitely is. <laughs> I want to, we're, really we're, we're kind of winding down, but there's a couple of things I wanted to cover Please. before we end. I, I want you to tell us about the, the turtle room. How did that start? Yeah. What do you guys do? Yeah. And just w- walk us through the whole thing. Yeah. So, so I, I kind of alluded to it a little bit when I answered your first question was kind of talking about like, here I am at five years old and then college and then kind of where the turtle room happened. And, and it really was, like I said, a group of people who said we're college educated, we're smart, we have good heads on our shoulders, we're doing the right thing. And, and I know I can contribute something. I don't know what, but I know I can like, and then it became this kind of thing where it was like, 
hey man you want to join us like you're you're a writer or you make videos or you do this or you do that like let's start to to kind of collaborate it really started more as like a turtle club we weren't really sure what we were doing and then over the years we talked about like yeah conservation you know and it, not really realizing how difficult conservation is right because the animals we breed they're not going back they're not going back to to the range country they're not going back to the wild you know like people use the word conservation a lot i think a better word is preservation if we can if we can breed these animals in captivity so that if they go extinct in the wild they can a group can be reintroduced repopulated that's a beautiful thing we wish we had dodo bird somewhere or tasmanian tiger somewhere or something in a zoo that could later you know repopulate areas where they got taken from but unfortunately that's not possible and with some of these turtle species we still can so i think preservation is a better one um but we did want to get into conservation and we do so so our tagline is education conservation survival education is number one for a reason you know i'm a people person um steve who's technically our founder because he knew how to make a website but gosh it's the best thing that he's the founder because he's he's so talented so smart so organized and he um he is an um, he has his master's in education and he is an educator so it's a beautiful thing so that's kind of where we come from like how could we help educate on the plight of turtles and tortoises and we did a lot of a lot of um, videos a lot of writing you know my book falls into that you know writing for reptiles magazine the Badiger, you know articles uh that you know published in italian and german and all sorts of different things all over the world um and then working like we have someone who has his doctorate in computer programming who's been with us since he was you know a young student and you know he's creating interactive range maps where you can go on and click any country in the world any state in the us and see what turtles are native there like really cool things finding creative ways to try to educate so that's that's the turtleroom.org um and we became an official nonprofit uh, a few years ago and it's been just wonderful and, they, and we did it the right way steve's wife is is a um a cpa she's you know she's she she knows all about taxes and tax law and that sort of stuff and and that was instrumental in helping us just do things the right way so you know a lot of experience i had was with nonprofits, but but this has just been such a wonderful and unique experience and, and we've been able to do so much and, and we've changed a lot of what we do like we have projects right now um around the world we're actually helping to support and run our own in situ um conservation efforts that we're funding you know through our nonprofit, and that's you know actually getting out there in the wild to research and and do monitoring studies and things like that on endangered species um and you know we're always looking for unique things like we, we partner with an agricultural high school here in connecticut um where you know the students actually work with endangered turtles that i brought there and we're helping those turtles get those kids get hands-on experience with those turtles so that they can actually build their resumes learn about endangered species and conservation and and you know research you know reading scholarly journals finding them you know publishing and, and writing about uh their own experiences and things like that so it's you know there's a lot of different things we do the sky's the limit and and we've grown you know talking about like younger anthony looking at me now and 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 that sort of thing and how proud i'd be like looking at the progress that we've made over the 10 years that the turtle room has existed has just been 
in absolutely incredible. And, you know, we have no plans of slowing down when we were getting started. We were very young. We're like, listen, we've got, you know, luck willing decades of, 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 of collaboration ahead of us. And, and we want to do big things. So, um, we have, we're totally volunteer based at this point. Um, we have something like 20, probably more than 20, uh, volunteer, um, staff volunteers. And, um, it's just great being able to work with those people and, and give them something to put on their resume so that they can move on and go and work for their state. You know, that's happened a few times where people are moving on to bigger jobs, bigger paid jobs because they started as a volunteer for the turtle room is a really wonderful thing, you know? And, um, yeah, it's, so it's just been a great opportunity to just work with like-minded positive people who just want to do the best that they can for turtles. I think it's important to acknowledge the the value that private people have in yes. this type in this type of situation and yep. it's a very eclectic bunch and really what, what caught me the most was in the beginning when you said look we're college educated individuals here and I feel like it's very easy to get pigeonholed into the idea that the only people that can advocate or direct others in this type of animal universe are people in zoos and museums and in science. And I feel like, like, look at it this way. If you are the one who writes the manual for a product, you should be the one that, that a, a consumer goes to, right? Not, not the person who sells the product, not the person who distributes the product, but the person who built the product, but as well as the person who uses the product on a regular basis. Do you think that, an average person who has the, the the passion and the dedication is better served developing this type of situation on their own, like you guys did. I mean, if if that's how they wanted to do it, what what advice would you give to someone looking to accomplish something that? I mean, obviously, I don't want to give you guys competition in the turtle game, but no, uh, no, let's no just worries. let's just let's just let's just say that if someone wanted to. Um, model this type of, 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 of not really business plan because it's not for profit, but if someone to mo- wanted to model this plan, what are some of the steps that they should take to, to get there? That's a really good question. I, I think so in terms of like who's better or that sort of thing, I don't, I don't necessarily know. I think it's good to be able to work without like the bureaucracy of an, because, ex- because it definitely happens like even with us, like it's different now with, you know, more than 20 volunteers and being an official nonprofit than it was when we were like totally grassroots. Weren't even a nonprofit yet. We just had ideas and we were working on stuff. It's it, the more it grows, it's kind of like us as we grow and we get experiences, it becomes tougher and tougher to just do anything. When I was coming out of college and I had a degree and I was young, like I can do any job. I can go and do security for Britney Spears. I don't like, I don't like, I don't know. I can, the sky is the limit. Who the hell knows where I'm going to end up the more time that passes, the less likely that is. I have a family now. I'm not going to go out to, 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 um, Las Vegas and, and be Britney's security. And now I don't think she's actually performing anymore. I'm not a Britney Sears fan, even though I sound like it right now. I'm just trying to talk about current events. And, and is, that like cause you, old. is that cause you're six foot, you said you're six <laughs> foot eight. Yeah. I used to worry about, you know, like I used to, cause I used to do security too, was one of the many jobs I used to do. But like the point being, there's just some random, you know, ridiculous thing. The point is like there's the the possibilities are endless and with 
you know, talking about like zoological folks and, and people who are working in that realm, it's really tough to get certain things, initiatives off the ground, unless you're like really leading things. Um, so I feel bad for a lot of our, our folks, our, a lot of our friends who are working in that world. Um, and I've just had fun with it. Like, honestly, you want to give a kid like advice on how they could do something like, like be successful and then care about it and you can dedicate your life to it. And I think, I think if anything that like, I'm an example of that, you know, I'm not rich by any means, but like, you know, I've, I've been able to, to kind of work at something and build a network and, and of people who I respect and trust and, and, you know, kind of build a, a good name where, where people do want to look to me kind of for my opinion on certain things as things are happening. And I'm very proud of that. It's not like I'm over here, you know, changing the game or anything, but, um, it, it's amazing what you can do if you just kind of dedicate yourself to, to something like that. And I think the great thing about this is there is no manual. And I can remember saying to Steve early on and just, I've been excited about the whole thing from the very beginning all the way through. And I can remember saying to him early on, like, I don't know where we're going, but I'm really enjoying the ride and I know we're going to do great things. And I think staying open to certain projects or initiatives or or next chapters in in the story has really allowed us to move in a way that's and and grow in a way that's been very organic and and unexpected. And I think if we went back and did it all over again, it would move in a different way because you know opportunities come up and ideas come up and and some of them you run with, some of them you put a pin in. And some of them you just say, yeah, I don't think it's the right idea. And um, there are certain ones that when they first come up, you think, oh, this is it. This is the game changer. And then it goes nowhere. And then there are other ones that just end up being something that maybe was on that, that maybe unexpectedly changed the entire game for you. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's been an amazing ride and, and I'm happy to say that in a lot of respects, it's just getting started, but um yeah, I, I, I owe a lot to Steve and, and to our other partners and directors and volunteers and, and my wife and, and colleagues and, and everything else. It's just, it's just a lot of fun. When I sit back and think about it, it's, it's, it's just really rewarding and, and incredibly positive. Well, that's a good thing. That's definitely a good thing. My last question, and this is, this is one of those things that I kind of throw out of from, from left field, but You've worked with a lot of different species, many, many species of turtles. In a in a perfect world, where uh, fantasy land, if you could keep one species, regardless of what it is, whether it's extinct or living, legal status or whatever, just just hypothetically, which mm. species of, which species of turtle would it be? You know, it's. So like if weather wasn't a thing, I'd really love to keep giant tortoises. I have a friend here in Connecticut who keeps Aldabras and bless his heart. He, he was so funny. He was like scared to tell me when he got them. <laughs> and he's like, oh, you're going to hate this, but here's what I did. And now he's like totally dedicated everything to it. And that's what he has. He has just a few giant tortoises and they're smaller, but they're growing and they're getting giant, not giant, giant, but they're getting big. And that's tough up here. You know, but that like to me, I used to when I was in college, um, my dream was to move south and have like a sulcata farm, which is that that um, species of African tortoise. that's a really popular pet. 
I just love them, but it just doesn't make sense. Um, and I love giant tortoises so much. They're so smart and interactive and, and awesome. I would really enjoy that. But really, like, that was a tough question to answer because I really feel like, like, I could totally be like, oh, I want this rare leaf turtle that's like the leaf turtles that I wrote my book about and, and that I specialize in. I really love. And there's this rare cousin that used to be in the same genus but now isn't and they're similar and like i totally think i could breed them and i want them i want them pokemon gotta catch them all pokemon um but i i think you know like where do you draw the line like i i have enough turtles i've kept enough turtles i'm okay and that's what i have to remind myself of is like the more turtles i have the less writing i do the less education i do the more tired i am the more that my care you know, for each one of those animals suffers. So like I get, I get giddy about it and, and all of that, but like, I remind myself that like, I'm good and I'm lucky. And um, yeah, but I think if things were different, I'd love to be able to keep giant tortoises. Who I wouldn't? Could, I could, I could definitely agree, agree with that. Right. Nothing cooler than those. When you go to the zoo and you see that 450 pound male Galapagos tortoise, like that's, that's different. I was thinking about Mola, the ancient one from the never-ending story. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want I want some of the giant tortoises that lived in Florida that were killed off by humans. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. I forgot you about know, that. Stuff like this. Yeah. That's just like, you know, that were killed off like woolly mammoths. Yeah. I have such a fascination with uh, extinct animals and, and mm -hmm. cryptids. I just think about all these different, I mean, really in relatively recent human history too, within yes. the past 500 years, how much. And in terms of human, I'm sorry, in terms of like Earth's history, it's extremely recent. It's part of the sixth extinction. Yeah. It's yeah. going on right now. Yeah. And is ramping up as we speak in terms of evolution and, and the world's history. Yeah. Yeah. It's... We're all, we're, we're doomed. We've... I know. I wish we weren't. You know, it's funny. I always uh, thought of myself as a hopeless optimist. And the more that I get into this animal stuff, the more I'm like becoming such a pessimist. And it stinks because I, I always took pride in being an optimist. But then I chose turtles or they chose me. And then that changed everything. The more I learn, the more I realize, well, man, we're in trouble. Oh, I'm a huge pessimist. So we're going to we're going to compliment each other. It, it's funny because I was on such a good clip for a long time where yeah. a, a lot of the a lot of the shows where I had experts on about conservation or the, or the future, it, it was always grim at, at the end and yeah. I kept telling myself I'm like I, I got to stop doing this. I got to stop ending every right? episode on this like sour, yeah. sour note, but I guess it's just a default character per, uh just a default characteristic of mine that I always <laughs> I always end up on this uh really morose uh end. I I don't know. I I think the beautiful thing is you mentioned it earlier, right? We can worry about things like frogs and turtles. That's the beautiful thing, right? Like when I was a kid, I worried about when my, where my next meal was coming from and if the bread man was going to have free donuts, you know, when he drove in with the expired bread when he came into my my projects in the morning. Like like these are the things I worried about, you know. Was I going to have clothes for school the next year or whatever? I don't have to worry about this stuff and my kids don't have to worry about that stuff. I get to worry about turtles 24 <laughs> 7 any chance any chance i can get when i'm trying when i'm supposed to be focusing on what my wife's telling me or what's going on at work and i'm just worried about turtles like so that's the positive i think is that we can actually worry about this thing and you know i think as sad as it is like we're talking about things now that we didn't in the past and 
you know, as the father of daughters, I worry about them and I worry about like, you know, how we raise our, our daughters and, and they're over apologizing and what society does to them and, and all of that sort of stuff. Cause I work in a really female dominate the veterinary field. If I do a training with 35 people, I'm the only male in the room. So I, I think about that a lot. I think about the animals a lot and, and all of that, but you know, we're thinking, we're talking about things like pollution and, and global warming and, and, and women's rights and all sorts of stuff that I think wasn't as much, um, wasn't as advanced as it is now. So I think we could look at everything and be really sad about where the world is and scared, but I think we could also be really grateful for, for where things are going. The fact that you and I get to have this conversation and connect is a beautiful part of, of, you know, today's world that couldn't have happened in the past. So. So I appreciate that and I appreciate you and, and what you're doing. And, and I really appreciate the opportunity to to be here with you. Well, that's kind of you to say. And, uh, you know, just just throwing it out there, I, your podcast was I know you guys aren't quite out like every week. But when I first started uh, looking to do my own podcast, the, the podcast was actually a, a, an inspiration for me. And I did draw some of my ideas and some of my methods from the just the way that you guys uh did your show as well and i thank you for that uh, you know, from uh, one man to another sir you are a gentleman and a scholar <laughs> thank you so much i really if appreciate anyone, you. if anyone still uses that expression anymore but i i, for, I like it i sincerely though i i i appreciate that and um it's uh it's it's nice to interact with other content creators who are uh, on the same level and have the same goals even though they're not the same, even clade of, of species, yeah. but yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's always my nice. last, my last takeaway for everyone. Remember, look up Geoemida spangleri, the black breasted leaf turtle from Vietnam. It is the best turtle to keep in like vivariums, terrariums, the way that you keep things like dart frogs and geckos. Okay. With the pothos and the bromeliads and all of that stuff. Okay. Look them up you're going to be a turtle person soon. If you like the dart frogs, you like different frogs and stuff like that, that lives in that type of environment, you're going to be a turtle person soon. Okay. And feel free to reach out. Um, I'm, I'm at my name on Instagram and Facebook, just Anthony Pierleone and check out Turtly Devoted or the podcast and feel free to reach out if you have any questions, uh, turtle related questions. I'm always happy to chat. And can you just tell any one of the listeners out there who's interested in how they can get your book? Yeah, um, so um, it's it's on Amazon, and you can just Google my name, and it'll come up. Um, Anthony Pierleone, um, or you can also, you know, reach out to me. I have books if you'd like to buy one. I could send you an autographed copy. Yeah, it's a small book. It's not it's nothing profound. There's not been a lot published on these turtles before, so it's like a small 120 page book that pretty much covers my own observations and breeding of the species. There's two species in the genus, uh, one from the Ryukyu Islands, which is like Japan's Hawaii, basically, and then also another one from China and Vietnam. Those two species in the genus, and um, it's you know it's it's like a fifteen dollar book, sixteen dollar book. It's it's a small book, but it's very nice. Um, it also has it touches on my experiences and then with them and then everything you know, that's pretty much been published on them ever because they're really like poorly known species, really, in terms of research. I just Googled the, I actually just Googled the species and the uh, cover of the book came right up. See? Yeah. There you go. 
they're great and and they're small enough that they don't trample all the plants and you know one of the best breeders of that genus in the in the country is is my partner and a wonderful guy who actually got me into them once upon a time and he's he would always say if the plants are thriving the turtles are thriving so you if you can keep a, pl- a, a planted you know enclosure with with pothos and stuff like that that's really easy to grow then these turtles are going to do great for you and and they're just amazing they're not the cheapest turtles around and you shouldn't just keep them for fun like they're endangered so you should breed them but a lot of people are catching on and a lot of new people are breeding them and it's a really exciting thing so i didn't mean to go off on a last tangent but i felt like i should just give that little plug that they are one of the best turtle species out there and i think for a, a amphibian based um audience or a frog or or gecko based audience or even snake based audience this is like the gateway turtle i can definitely see their appeal so yeah <laughs> oh yeah yeah All right, everyone, I want to thank Anthony for joining me. Uh, It's been a very enlightening episode. I love doing episodes with other content creators. And uh, I hope that even if, you know, even if you're not into the whole turtle world, I would encourage you to go check out the turtle room. And by all means, check out Anthony's podcast. If you if you enjoy my content, I know that you will definitely appreciate his as well. It's a lot of high level stuff. And uh, yeah, so I uh, again, hope you guys enjoy this episode. Take care of yourselves. I'll catch up with you again soon.